Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of February 18th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. I've been getting a lot of questions about Vista. Not too surprising. The main question, should I upgrade now or later? Well, I would suggest leaving out the now or later part, at least for the immediate future. The primary question is whether or not you should upgrade. For me, the current answer is no. That, however, is subject to change. I've taken a look at my reasons for not upgrading right now. They come down to essentially four main points. The system I have works just fine the way it is. Thank you very much. Vista, although it probably is compatible with all of my hardware, is not yet compatible with some of the software I want to use. Third, no matter how well any system has been tested, there always are going to be some problems that don't become apparent until the product is in the hands of the consumers. And fourth, right now I just don't have time. Let's take a look at each of those individually. The system I have works just fine the way it is. That, I think, is probably the weakest of all possible reasons. When cited as a reason for avoiding change, we've always done things this way, infuriates me. So it seems a little odd to me that I've listed that first. I've always kind of enjoyed change and the challenges that change brings. So the only way this can be a viable reason for me is for it to be related to the other reasons, and indeed it is. I know that some of the applications that I need don't work currently with Vista, and until those problems are worked out, I prefer using the older operating system that does work. So that leads right into the being incompatible with some of the software I want. The computer that I use is about a year old. All of the components, the hardware stuff, should work just fine with Vista. I haven't tested, but I'm fairly sure that it is. Software, however, is another story. I have heard a number of distressing accounts from people who have Logitech devices and have tried to use those with Vista. Well, I have a Logitech mouse, and I really would like to be able to continue using the mouse. So until the problems are resolved there, and they probably will be fairly soon, I'm not going to do the upgrade. Apple also recommends waiting for the next version of iTunes before upgrading to Vista. Apple has released what they call a repair tool for Vista 1.0. If you run that, it makes it possible for a Vista-based computer to play music you purchased from the iTunes Music Store. However, Vista's Safe Remove for Device, that's the icon that you click that allows you to make sure all files have been written to an external device and have been closed, works for other devices, but it does not work for iPods. So you could end up scrambling the disk, having to reformat your iPod, and having to reinstall all of the music. I'm not up for that, sorry. There are also a number of other problems that have been cited with various other applications. So before you upgrade, check with the publishers of every application you consider critical to be sure it'll work under Vista. And that doesn't mean just the primary things that you use on a daily basis. If there's something you use just infrequently, but you still consider it an important application, make sure that you've checked to be sure it will work. Not all the problems have been identified. Well, of course, <laughs> I've run beta versions of other applications and operating systems in the past. 
I know that even once you get past the beta into release versions, problems still pop up. And right now, I just don't have the time, the space, or the hardware to run Vista on a non-production machine. And then, of course, I just don't have time. Well, this is uh, Sunday, the 18th of February. Tomorrow, the 19th, I leave for New York. I'll be gone all week. I have two more trips to New York coming up in the next couple of months. Got some other projects that are in progress right now. So I just don't have time. I don't have time to troubleshoot the problems because I'm in the midst of several time-critical projects that really can't be delayed. Someday, I will be installing Vista. I know that it offers some advantages, but I don't have the time to learn a new interface and to troubleshoot all those problems. Now, if I were buying a computer today, which I'm not, I probably would put Vista on it. There's no question about that. But there's also no question that I'm not going to wait until I buy a new computer to install Vista. I won't be buying a new computer for at least a couple of years. I'm figuring that I'll probably be able to resist that siren song, that pull from Microsoft, for maybe six months tops. At that time, I will upgrade the existing system to Vista. By then, I presume that most of the problems revealed by the early adopters will have been identified and corrected. So if you want my advice, that's what I'd suggest. Give it a few months. Several months ago, I mentioned that I had replaced the battery in my third-generation iPod. Third generation. Several years old. Until a recent trip to New York City, I hadn't used the iPod for extended play on battery. When I bought the $40 replacement battery from iPodJuice.com, the existing battery gave me maybe 30 minutes of playtime. The replacement ran for nearly five hours at almost full volume. I think that was a pretty well-spent 40 bucks iPod Juice says that each new battery they ship is tested and then packaged in an anti-static bubble wrap to make sure that it arrives in ready-to-install condition. The batteries also offer more power than the batteries that came with the iPod. The company says that most people replace their own batteries by following the instructions provided, and the instructions are excellent. You'll see examples of them on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And yes, I do keep trying to say Technology Corner. If you don't want to do the installation yourself, there are options ranging from $20 to $70, depending on whether you have your own shipping box or whether you want iPod Juice to provide it and on how fast you want the job done. Well, I did my own replacement, and the batteries themselves range in price from $25 to $40, again, depending on the model you have and depending on how much power you want. On most of the models, there are at least two replacement batteries. On some, you have three choices. I bought the one that provided the longest running time. So if you have an iPod that's running down, check with iPod Juice. TechBiter Worldwide has been a podcast since May of 2006. What I thought was a step down really turns out to be a step up. The program now has listeners worldwide, not just in Ohio, and the six states that surround Ohio. So that's kind of a wow in my book. Apple's iTunes has recognized the trend. Podcasts are available when you want them to be, not just when somebody schedules them on the air. If you listen, it's because you're interested, not because it's just what's on the air at the time. I didn't understand that until mid-2006 when WTVN canceled Joe Bradley's Sunday morning program. So actually, they, they did me a favor. 
And by the way, if you're not a fan of Apple and iTunes, and I've received a couple of messages about that, next week I will have some information for you on how to obtain the MP3 file directly. According to Apple, many of America's public broadcasters have embraced podcasting, and the response from our users has been tremendous. I'm quoting Apple here. Whether you're a fan of This American Life, Marketplace, On the Media, or Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, you can get your favorite show on your schedule. Check out eight of the standouts below or search the iTunes store for names like NPR, PBS, PRI, or your local affiliate. Public broadcasting via podcast means quality with a new level of convenience. That's the word from Apple. And I agree, convenience. I always enjoyed listening to NPR's Bob Edwards in the morning on the way to work, but NPR decided not to renew Bob's contract, and he ended up on XM Radio. The program he does is far too involved to audition while I'm working, but I have a MiFi XM Radio that allows me to record Bob's morning program and play it back during the afternoon when I'm in the gym. That's convenience. I'm able to listen on my schedule. I record TechBiter Worldwide Sunday mornings because that's when Technology Corner was on the air. In fact, it's 6.28 currently on Sunday morning. But you might be listening Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, or sometime during the middle of the week. That's convenience. You decide. That's pretty cool. You, as a listener, get to decide when to listen or whether to listen. If you find the program boring, you can turn it off. You can listen to something else. Because there are no commercials, you decide when or whether to support the program. If you're listening now, it's because you decided to listen. Podcasting changes the equation in the listener's favor. Convenience. We're going to see the same thing with photographs, video, and other audio sources. If you like something, it's easy to forward it to your friends who also may enjoy it. When I create the podcast, I export an MP3 file that's as small as I can make it, because some listeners are still limited to slow dial-up service. Audio, video, and photo files can be reduced in size, and that's a point that Gary Freeland made in asking that I take a look at ways we can shrink files that people send to each other. In Gary's words, with the proliferation of digital audio and digital video files, perhaps you could address the subject of compressing these files so they can be sent via email or IM messages. Many email servers limit file sizes which can be sent, while many of today's digital cameras and music sources use high resolution for their sound and pictures. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, you may have a high-speed Internet connection, but not everybody else does. And even those who do might be a little annoyed if you send them 10 or 15 photos, each of which might be 5 megabytes. If you're sharing pictures for people to take a look at on the screen, not planning to have them print them out, you don't need to send anything larger than about 800 pixels on the image's longer side. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, there's a picture of me. You can take a look at it. It's 200 pixels wide, 249 pixels tall. It's large enough for you to see on the screen, but the image itself is just 13 kilobytes compared to the larger version, which is nearly a megabyte. The larger version is 1,045 pixels by 1,299 pixels. It's also significantly higher quality, so I've toned down the quality a bit, and I've shrunk the image, taking it from nearly a megabyte down to just 13 kilobytes. There are a couple of other possibilities I show you on the website. You can see kind of a medium-quality picture that's gone from nearly a megabyte down to 230 kilobytes, and a lower quality, perhaps objectionably lower quality, that goes down to 54 kilobytes, even though it's that full-size image. 
Shrinking photos is really pretty easy. One of the first things you have to remember, the primary thing you have to remember, is to save that smaller version with a different name or in a different directory. If you write over the original image with a lower quality copy, you're going to eliminate any opportunity you ever have to use that full quality version. Also, it's important to remember when you're using a JPEG image from the camera, you should save that. If you plan to do anything to it other than resize it, you should save it in your photo editor's native format. The native format for Photoshop, for example, is a PSD file, or a safe choice is always TIFF. These files are big, but they're lossless. The problem is that each time you open a JPEG file, do any work to it, and then save it again, you lose some quality. Do that several times, and the image that started out being pretty good will end up looking bad. Some of the programs you can use for sharing photos, Picasa 2, for example, it's free from Google, lets you create a collage, a screensaver, you can even create a movie from a selection of images, and it allows you to create a CD you can send to your friends. There's also built-in an automated process that exports images appropriately sized for email and gives you the ability to upload images to the free Hello photo sharing service. There's Corel's Paint Shop Pro 11. There's an entire print and share section on the menu that makes the process as easy as clicking a selection from a menu. Paint Shop Pro, by the way, is the application that's preferred by many people who create photographic scrapbooks, and those are extremely popular these days. If you'd like more control, you can use a free program such as Irfan View. There's also the Adobe Photoshop Elements, not free, or an even more not-free Adobe Photoshop CS2. Unless you need all the features of CS2, that's probably not a wise purchase. Another application that does a really good job of organizing photos, creating slideshows, and resizing images for other users is Sirius Softwares, and Sirius is spelled with a C, Thumbs Plus. There's a neat macro capability in there that lets you select a bunch of photos and then apply the same effect to all of them. So those are some of the programs that you can take a look at for resizing and working with photos. There are links to each of the sites on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Next week, we'll take a look at audio files. In nerdly news, how about those memory prices? Wow, they're down and continuing to drop. That's great, isn't it? Well, it's great for consumers, not so great for the companies that provide the materials, not so great for their employees. SanDisk Corporation says it is laying off 10% of its workforce and cutting the salaries of the executives because memory chip prices are down so much. Last week, Micron Technology announced that prices for memory chips used in consumer electronics would drop 30 to 40%. This quarter, SanDisk and Micron are direct competitors. They both manufacture memory chips for media players, digital cameras, and other similar devices. SanDisk says prices are down about 50% over the last two months because of excess supply and seasonally weak demand. So they're going to be cutting about 250 jobs. Executive pay will drop 10 to 20%, and salaries for everybody else will be frozen. I opened this week's show with Vista. How big is Vista going to be for Microsoft? Microsoft has essentially bet its future on an operating system that it's really not sure anybody wants. The launch was decidedly lower key and softer than some other launches, for example, Windows 95, remember that? No songs have been written for or about Vista. 
sales have been lower than expected, at least lower than expected by Wall Street, perhaps not lower than expected by Microsoft. Microsoft has launched a campaign to lower expectations. Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer said this week that Wall Street analysts were too optimistic about the sales of Vista. The analysts had called for strong growth in Vista sales, but Ballmer says that customers are not going to be in any particular hurry to upgrade existing machines. Vista is, as I noted, incompatible with some existing hardware, and it is particularly incompatible with some existing software. In addition to those problems, it needs a lot more memory to run efficiently. Well, that might link to our previous story and maybe provide some additional help for Micron SanDisk and the other manufacturers. Microsoft's business strategy, according to Balmer, is patience and persistence. Wow, who would have thought? History tells us that this does work for Microsoft. The company's first server software in 1989 was not well received. But in the intervening years, Microsoft has built a large following in server applications. And remember the original version of Internet Explorer? Pretty laughable, wasn't it? Took them three versions to get it right. Now they're in charge. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of February 18th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. And remember to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. You can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.